Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 230th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most acclaimed and admired creative artists ever to emerge from the island of Puerto Rico. He's a two-time Grammy-winning singer, an incredible dancer, and, as of last Thursday, an Emmy-nominated actor as well, Ricky Martin. Martin, who is now 46 but looks about half his age, has been a public figure for almost 35 years. At the age of 12, he became famous as a member of Menudo, the popular Puerto Rican boy band with which he performed for the next five years. He later re-emerged as an actor and a solo singer, signing with Sony Music Entertainment in 1990, releasing his first solo album in 1991, and developing a large international fan base over the next few years. But then, in 1998, in fact, 20 years ago this very week, a series of events went into motion that propelled him to a new level of fame that few others have ever attained. On July 12, 1998, Martin, having been invited by FIFA to write and perform a song at the 1998 World Cup Final in France, sang La Copa de la Vida, or The Cup of Life, reaching more than a billion TV viewers around the world. Shortly thereafter, the song was released as a single, topping the charts in dozens of countries, and then it became part of his fourth album, Vuelve, which was nominated for the Grammy for Best Latin Pop Album. At the 41st Grammys on February 24, 1999, Martin not only won that Grammy, but also was invited to perform La Copa de la Vida, and his rendition, which was greeted with a massive standing ovation, changed the course of his career and how people regard Latin music in America forever. Over the years since, Martin's popularity has ebbed and flowed, but he has continued to put out music of all sorts, popular and personal, English language and Spanish language, and in recent years, he has also found his way back to acting and into the orbit of TV creator Ryan Murphy. A guest stint on a 2012 episode of Murphy's Fox musical dramedy series Glee ultimately led to an offer to play Antonio D'Amico, the longtime partner of fashion designer Gianni Versace, on Murphy's 2018 FX limited series The Assassination of Gianni Versace, American Crime Story. And Martin's performance on that show has now earned him his first ever Emmy nomination, which comes in the category of Best Supporting Actor in a Limited Series or Movie, and represents a major milestone of which he is very proud. During our interview, Martin and I discuss all of the above, plus much more. 
But before we get to that, I was joined for our opening segment by my friend and colleague Rebecca Ford, our awards editor, to discuss and dissect the nominations for the 70th Emmy Awards, which were announced on Thursday. Rebecca, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Sure. So what do you think the the main story is? There's been a lot of attention here, I guess, about the Netflix HBO scoreboard. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest news. You know, HBO has been the top nominations earner for years now. So to see Netflix take over this year with 112 compared to HBO's 108 Mm -hmm. is a really big deal. You know, Netflix really pushed a ton of their show, spent a ton of money, and and it seems to have worked for them. Yeah, and and even though it is only four nominations separating them, it is symbolically significant, and especially at a time when HBO is kind of in purgatory in another sense as well, because their parent company, Time Warner, was just acquired by AT&T, the overseers of which are now sending some signals to HBO that things are going to be changing there anyway, which is scary. So in a way, it's hard to see this flipping backwards. HBO is still doing a lot of great stuff and putting out a lot of great shows, but Netflix seems so on the rise that I think it may be the end of the HBO era of at least leading these nomination mornings. It definitely could be. I think, you know, we sort of expected them to do really well this year because Game of Thrones is back and that's always been their their big hit. So And them, did get the most nominations mm-hmm. again of all shows this year, twenty two. Yep. So for them to not be able to do it with Game of Thrones, yeah. you know, is a definitely warning sign for the future for right. them, I think. Right. So Netflix is sort of seen as the king of streamers, HBO the king of pay cable. But let's talk about how some of these other historically big players fared this year. You've got the broadcast networks, which have been fading from the Emmy scene over the last decade, NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox. NBC is still hanging in there in the same universe of, you know, as a Netflix and HBO, it's doing very well thanks to Saturday Night Live and Jesus Christ Superstar and This Is Us. But ABC and CBS have really plummeted in the last few years, including this year, right? Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't great for ABC and CBS. You know, they both had 30 something noms. NBC had 78, so still very respectable there. But yeah, we're just seeing, you know, every year it gets worse and and worse for broadcasts. So the streamers and HBO sort of rule at this point. And This Is Us was the only broadcast show represented in the top drama series category and the top comedy series category. The only broadcast show was Blackish, which means that for the first time in the entire run of Modern Family, it is not a comedy series nom, even though there were eight comedy series nominees this year. I don't think anyone's saying that's an injustice. In fact, for the last few years, they've been trying to understand how Modern Family was still getting nominated. But I guess it really suggests that broadcast is in trouble when even Modern Family, which the TV Academy has been so enamored with, can't make it onto a list of eight. Yeah, I think that's totally true. I think especially with comedy, it feels like these fresh shows are what everyone wants. It's a little bit of a different kind of comedy. You know, you look at Barry or Glow and Mrs. Maisel, and I think there's a lot of excitement around these new shows. And so this is, I guess, maybe the end for Modern Family when it comes to nominations. And as you mentioned with those other examples, they're tending to go in the comedy series category more and more for shows that are edgier and single camera and have largely dramatic elements as well with laughs, but, you know, are, are more serious. Barry's about a serial killer. Maisel is about a woman's marriage falling apart while she discovers her own identity. And on and on and on we can go. But 
it just seems like maybe people's tastes, they're not going for the 24 episode seasons of Laugh Track or, or live audience shows. But anyway, let's also note that while Netflix was the top scoring streamer by far, the other two high profile streamers, Hulu and Amazon Prime, they did not do anywhere nearly as well as Netflix. Netflix, again, had 112 noms. Hulu came in with 27, Prime with just 22. But in a weird way, they are better positioned to pull off some big wins than Netflix is. Can you talk about sort of what the top targets for Hulu and Amazon Prime are going to be going into the next round? Yeah, I think both Hulu and Amazon Prime have sort of put their eggs in you know, one basket. You look at Hulu with Handmaid's Tale. I mean, they really ruled last year, and I think we could likely see that again. The show is so timely. You know, everyone's been saying the second season really hit on things that are going on in, in the world. Mm-hmm. And similarly, Amazon really focused on their new show, Mrs. Maisel, and I think they're really hoping you know, lead actress and and comedy that they have a really good chance with both of those. So I think their strategy was a little different than what we see with Netflix, where they have a lot of shows that they're pushing. They, both of those streamers really focused on their, their really strong horse in this race, if right. you will. And as you say, they both have a shot at their series categories that they're nominated for, but Handmaids is, is going to have to face Game of Thrones this year, which it did not have to do last year when it became the first streamer ever to win a series award. And... Maisel, which wasn't around last year, is going to have to hold off FX's Atlanta, which has a huge following, and Barry from HBO, which we were just talking about. So their likeliest shots in both cases are probably for their lead actresses. So it's hard to see Elizabeth Moss not as the favorite for lead actress in a drama series. And I think Rachel Brosnahan is the prohibitive favorite for best actress in a comedy series for Maisel. Speaking of FX, though, let's talk about one of the most nominated shows of the year. We're used to seeing Ryan Murphy shows do very well at the Emmys. They just tend to have big ensembles and many of those people get nominated. And this year was no exception for the FX limited series, The Assassination of Gianni Versace, American Crime Story. Just talk about the wide array and particularly on the acting side, just the diversity of people who are going to be at the Emmys on behalf of that show. Yeah, they definitely got a ton of nominations. I mean, it helps that they have some really big names involved with that show. You know, you look at Ricky Martin and Penelope Cruz. You know, these are people that everyone has loved for a long time, so that doesn't hurt. But then, you know, you see the work of Darren Chris in the lead, and, and he also got a nomination, and Finn Whitrock and Edgar Ramirez. Like, to get so many acting noms for a limited series is really impressive, and I thought the show was really well done, and yeah. I think it's definitely deserved. And it looks like, unless Netflix can really fire people up about Godless, which is a very good limited series as well and got a lot of nominations. I I think that's the only thing in that category that has any chance of derailing Gianni Versace, but I, I wouldn't expect that to happen. But let's move on to Variety Talk Series, which is a category that features a lot of shows that everybody's aware of and and at least samples it's not the case with usually these these other ones we've been talking about drama series comedy series you know people can only watch so much but everybody's at least aware of the late night shows that are out there and this year the big question was would any of last year's nominees be knocked out of the race and there was sort of a sense that if somebody were to fall out it would be either Bill Maher for Real Time on HBO or Samantha B for Full Frontal. These are once-a-week shows that are not 
on HBO, unlike John Oliver, who's been winning here year after year. And in the end, it was not an issue, it looks like, for Samantha B that she had this whole C-word, feckless C-word thing about Ivanka Trump during the voting or just before the voting. But Bill Maher, I don't know if he did anything differently or people just preferred somebody else, but in the end, he got bounced in favor of Trevor Noah. A lot of people were thinking if, if somebody fell out, it would be in favor of one of the NBC late night guys, either Jimmy Fallon, who sort of made amends for the thing that got him booted last year, we assume, the hair ruffling of Trump, or Seth Meyers, who follows him and, and has been as political as any of these guys. And it does seem like they're rewarding Trump barbs more than ever. So why do we think Trevor Noah, who's wonderful, and, and I'm thrilled to see him get nominated, but that did sort of come out of the blue, right? Yeah, I think it was a surprise. I mean, I can't quite make sense of it, but I think what you've said that people who are focusing more on politics is definitely an advantage now, just with this climate and, and the way the news cycle's been working lately. So that makes sense to me. And, and I think it's interesting with Samantha B. I I feel like the controversy helped more than her. You know, everyone was talking about her during voting. So yeah, I don't know exactly why Trevor instead of any of those others, other than, you know, maybe it's just sort of a fresher voice yeah. situation. He is but one of many examples of a very diverse group of nominations that I'm sure makes the leadership of the Academy envious because year after year, and largely deservedly, they take flack for not producing a varied group of nominees. But granted, there is much more to pick from on TV, and there's a lot more offerings and also a lot more voters in their organization of the TV Academy, which makes it a, a more diverse group, 23,000 versus 9,000. But, you know, it's it's pretty interesting if you look at that category, you've got Two Brits, Corden and Oliver. You've got one African, Trevor Noah, from my mom's homeland of South Africa. You've got a woman, Samantha Bee. And then you got a couple of good old-fashioned old white guys, Jimmy Kimmel and Stephen Colbert. That's a fun category to look at. But let's move on to a, a little bit of a sadder category, and that is Best Informational Series or Special. It's a really eclectic category that was won in the past by Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown for CNN. And of course, Anthony Bourdain just recently took his own life. So he's a posthumous nominee this year. You also have in that category a newcomer that has a, a big following, and that is My Next Guest Needs No Introduction with David Letterman on Netflix. And I'm sure that Netflix is going to going hard for that. And it was a pretty amazing thing, the caliber of the guests he got for the first season of that show. Yeah, I think, you know, if Anthony Bourdain had not passed away, I feel like Letterman would have this mm -hmm. one in the bag. But I do feel like people are going to want to give Bourdain this sort of honor, yes, you know, I after love. his passing. Yes. So I think he's nominated in a couple other categories mm -hmm. as well. So I feel like we could be hearing Bourdain a couple of times. Yeah. Or at least on the Creative Arts Awards yes. just before the main Emmys. But then, you know, I guess we can't totally write off the other nominees, particularly last year's winner, Leo Remini, Scientology in the Aftermath on A&E, which has caused a lot of controversy and discussion. It's an interesting show. And the other two nominees are Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson from Nat Geo and Vice for HBO be interesting to see what happens there. But let's close this segment by talking about the two or three things that you are most upset were not nominated and then two or three things that you are happiest were nominated. And I guess let's start with we can each cover the, you know, the bummers first. What were you most bummed to see not nominated? 
Yeah, I was disappointed that Killing Eve didn't get a drama show nomination. I thought the show was really great. And, you know, if we look at the group uh, that was nominated, there's not a single new show in, in the category. So it would have been cool to see that. And then another new show I also would have loved to see in the drama category was Counterpart. Or at least for J.K. Yes, Simmons. Yes, at yeah. least for J.K. Simmons. He was so great in the show playing these dual characters. I mean, that's an extremely challenging role. But he also did not get anything. So those were my two biggest bummers. What about you? I think you? you also mentioned you were you were a little surprised about Alison Brie not being in there yeah. when Glow got a series nom and Betty Gilpin, the supporting actress, got a... Uh, supporting actress nom, but you don't nominate the lead of the show. That was weird. Very strange, yeah. My should have been nominated, I think, would include The Looming Tower for limited series. That was really surprising that it didn't make it in there. You know, they have five slots. We knew Gianni Versace was getting one. We knew Godless was getting one, probably Patrick Melrose. But those last two, Genius, Picasso, they, they did a good job and ran a very good campaign. But The Alienist on TNT, nothing against it, but that's not something that was on too many forecasts and i am a little surprised that got in over looming tower and then i would also say i think the vietnam war i i didn't even see it on the ballot for any of the documentary categories and i didn't understand that i still don't because it's nominated for i think directing of a documentary series all kinds of other technical awards somehow it's not in the top docuseries category up alongside the the likes of wild wild country the fourth estate the Defiant Ones, Blue Planet 2, and American Masters, I think it could hold its own against any of those, but somehow is not there and isn't even in the the other category that I guess it could have gone into. If it, I figured when I didn't see it on the ballot as an option, I thought that was because they were putting all their chips onto it, getting recognized for exceptional merit in documentary filmmaking, which is sort of more public service recognition for doing something socially valuable. Instead, that category only ended up with four nominees, City of Ghosts, Jane, Strong Island, and What Haunts Us. So I don't really know what the hell happened there. I'll look into that. But finally, let's end on a positive note. The two or three things that we are happiest were nominated this year. Well, my big one is definitely Sandra Oh. It's the first ever woman of Asian descent in the category, and and I would love for her to win. I know that category is so competitive. You know, you've got Claire Foy and Elizabeth Moss and, and these sort of heavy hitters who have done amazing work, but I just can't imagine what it would mean if, if she could win. But to have her nominated, I think, was the biggest highlight for me, for sure. I would say it wasn't a surprise to see this, but I was thrilled that Henry Winkler got nominated for Barry, which is a show that I love. And he is, as we've both experienced firsthand, a lovely guy who has been acting in shows people love for decades, going back to Happy Days, of course. And yet he has never won. I think he's now been nominated something like a half dozen times, never won. And I think that is going to change this year, which would be a pretty cool moment. I would also throw in... The Americans, it's a show that I have loved and everybody holds in such high regard, even though it's never done great ratings and hasn't really gotten the Emmy love that it deserves up to this point. Now for its last season, both of its leads, Matthew Reese and Kerry Russell, are nominated. The show is nominated for Best Drama Series. It's got another nom as well, I think, for the writing of the series finale. And I would love to see one of those things pan out. I think it's an uphill climb for any of them. I think there's a chance... Carrie could happen, Carrie Russell for Best Actress in a Drama Series, just because it is so, you know, you have a category filled with nominees who have very passionate followings, and you could see a weird split there or something where maybe sentimentality could tip it for Carrie, and I think that's probably their best shot. But 
a lot of good options across the board. And thank you for coming in and discussing them with us, Rebecca Ford. Of course. Thanks so much. And now for my interview with Ricky Martin. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Martin and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. Why, as a kid growing up in San Juan, he was drawn to performing, and how, despite several rejections, he ultimately wound up a member of Menudo. Why, after his years with Menudo, he wasn't sure if he wanted to continue singing, but how, through a series of fortuitous events, he wound up signing on to do just that for Sony's Latin music imprint. What it was like being in the middle of the storm as his career exploded after the 1998 World Cup and the 1999 Grammys, and how he handled living La Vida Loca. Why it wasn't until the year 2000, when he was already 38 years old, that he was finally able and willing to publicly acknowledge that he is a gay man, and how he thinks carrying that secret, and then no longer needing to, impacted him personally and professionally. Why it was both painful and cathartic to be given the opportunity to star in the assassination of Gianni Versace, which meant returning to the closeted 90s to live them again, only through someone else's experience, and with the perspective of all that he has been through since he actually experienced them, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Ricky, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. So we always begin just by asking, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in San Juan, Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. and my father is a psychologist, mm -hmm. and my mother is everything. My <laughs> She's like a superhero. My father is also a superhero, mm -hmm. to be honest, and I, had, I have a very beautiful relationship with them. They yeah. still live in Puerto Rico. My entire family lives in Puerto Rico, but some of my brothers yeah. who now live in Miami, but it's a great family, yeah. big family. And was music a big part of your life as a kid or, you know, any favorite genres or artists or anything like that? So growing up in Puerto Rico, believe it or not, it was all about rock and roll back in the, you know, 80s <laughs> and late 70s. And until my mom said, enough is enough. <laughs> Stop it. You guys are <laughs> Latinos and you have to know about Latin music. And then for that, I will always be thankful yeah. because she opened the door to a whole new world. So what kind of music? Everything. Yeah. Just bring it on. <laughs> now you've just spoken about how highly you think of both of your parents. I know that they split up when you were quite young. And as I understand it from, from reading what I could, your mother relocated to Florida. Your father was going to stay in San Juan. You were all set to be going off to Florida, but you didn't want, you, you said your dad was really like a hero to you. So you didn't want to have that separation. And so you ended up basically staying mm -hmm. in San Juan. What was it about your relationship with your dad that made it so hard to be away from him? He's just a great father, yeah. a great father. And, and it's about bonding time. Yeah. Once again, I'm going to be honest, I kind of like grew up with my grandmother. Mm -hmm. I was living with her. Mm -hmm. My father lived across the street, mm -hmm. but she was the one always waiting for me after school. And she would prepare some coffee and cracker with butter before I started doing homework. So I have a beautiful memories yeah. of, of my relationship with my mother. But then again, when I was about to move to Miami, mm -hmm. my mom decided to go back to the island. So I didn't have to make that decision. Yeah, it's it's all in my book. Yeah. I, I had the me. Uh, yeah, I had the opportunity <laughs> to write write my memoirs, and it was very purifying. It was, yeah. it was very cathartic to be able to go back in time and and be specific and share with the world where I've been and, yeah. and what I'm made of. So yeah, there was kind of a big moment, I guess, when you were seven, mm -hmm. when I think you approached your father and said something. Can you share how a seven year old had the 
foresight about what you want. You said basically, right, I'm an artist. And what can we do about this? I, I think it was a little bit later in life. I don't know yeah. if it's seven years old, maybe eight, nine. Yeah. I started doing TV commercials. My aunt brought me to this audition for a TV commercial and I ended up having the job. And then and then in the next couple of years, I, I was in front of the camera maybe two, three, four times a year doing different campaigns. You were like a big commercial like go-to guy. Right? Yeah, yeah, I was... I was recognizing the shopping center. Yeah, yeah the guy of the spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> but the, but to be honest, I, I was also in school, you know, doing some plays, and mm -hmm. I was an altar boy, so mm -hmm. we can consider that a stage as well. Mm -hmm. And then one day, I just said, "Dan, I want to be part of Menudo." I was very specific. I, w I wanted to be. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to entertain. But now, for I, anyone who's listening who may not know what Menudo is, was can you? share just how big a deal you know that's like in a way for somebody that age that's saying i want to be in the beatles sort of right back then yeah yeah and uh, well, i think it was the band that became like the perfect platform from any child coming from puerto rico that wanted the attention of the of, of an audience that wanted to to be an artist i auditioned and i from one day to the other i'm traveling around the world and i'm meeting people from all walks of life and well they turn you down a few times right yeah <laughs> you did your homework <laughs> yes i was too short that's compared to the rest big, of the guy you're a big guy now you must yeah. have had a growth spurt so yes i i was denied three times i think it uh -huh. was and then i went for a third or fourth audition and i an hour later we were signing a contract then next morning i was flying off to orlando florida where the band was based out of unbelievable so, and you so were just 12 right and now that I'm a father yeah. and my kids are about to turn 10 years old, I cannot imagine me sending them on an airplane. Well, that's what I want to ask what it was like for you in a few different senses, because first of all, your first performance with the band, I think I read, was at Radio City Music Hall. So talk about being thrown into the deep end. <laughs> to the lions, right. literally. But like you suddenly, almost as you say, like almost overnight, mm. you're away from your family. You're more of a public figure than mm -hmm. certainly from the commercials. People, mm -hmm. you're famous in that way, wealthier than in most other kids your age, mm -hmm. and also having to work pretty hard. It wasn't, you know, all fun and games. You guys performed a lot. It so. was a lot of work, but, but we must take into consideration the fact that back then we had no, no Skype, and we, <laughs> and we had no. So literally, my mom just put me on an airplane, and she had no idea when I was gonna, or and my father, she yeah. had no idea when I was gonna call back. And back then it was all about collect calls. Yeah. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> so it was really interesting. Yeah. So that's why I, I now I put myself in my parents' uh, position where I'm, I'm literally sending my kids. Why do you think they to, did it? Because I wanted it so bad. Yeah. They could see it in my eyes. I, I really wanted this. I, I was pretty aggressive mm -hmm. on, on, on how bad I wanted to be on stage and I wanted to perform. And I... And my father is also very specific. Mm -hmm. he, you know, he saw that I that I had it. Okay, okay, I said it. Yeah, good, yeah. <laughs> he saw that I had it, and he was very helpful. He he would bring me to auditions, but he's not. He was not the father, the stereotypical father that wants you know that forces right. his child to to become an artist. I, I was actually pulling him with mm -hmm. me, and uh, and it was stronger than me, so I, he could see it. Were you already a really good singer and dancer before Menudo, or did that happen because of Menudo? Well, Menudo, it was four years, if not five years, of intense adrenaline, but more than anything, I, I remember... Menudo is a very important part of my preparation, my, my education. Mm -hmm. It was so theatrical. We were rehearsing 
every day doing interviews every day and on top of that obviously going to school yeah. i was homeschool and and, and our and the tutor would travel with us and we would study even saturdays and sundays mm -hmm. for three hours mm. and in menudo i had not only the opportunity to do music but when i was the first time i ever did acting was in argentina being part of this band where we pretty much moved to Buenos Aires and and we started acting and and so that was my first the first opportunity I had to tell a tell a story as and an you actor really like the acting aspect hooked. of things yeah so hooked and producers and director would come to me Ricky this is this is your route this is what you need to do and it was very beautiful yeah i guess a question that comes up thinking about you know you're 12 through probably 17 i think mm -hmm. during the time you were with Menudo and for any kid, those are, you know, interesting years. You're trying to figure out who you are and where you fit in the world and all of that. What a mess. And you have <laughs> you have thousands of girls that are, and I'm sure guys that were, you know, very big fans of yours at that time. Did you know even back then what your own personal orientation was or did that come later? Like, how did, how did that aspect of things work at that time in your life well, my sexual identity yeah. it, it took me many decades for me to figure out and i'm sure i'm not the only man or woman that goes through that mm -hmm. and then obviously if you are in the spotlight and you're and you, you know the information that comes that is thrown at you is like you have to dance and you have to dance well in order for the girls to scream and 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 we you know i was part of a boy band mm -hmm. and and being part of this boy band it was like the more you dance the more screaming girls you want the the better you are mm -hmm. so that was confusing yeah. my friend that was confusing and i and i've obviously always felt attractive to men mm -hmm. but i was not allowed to feel that that was that was not an option back in the days i mean not only because of my career but also because of because i was catholic yeah. and and yeah. and i was an altar boy and 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 it was a big no-no so it was confusing if because i mean when you're 16 14 16 17 year old and and you feel something beautiful about in my case about another man but the information that i have is that is evil yeah. that that is the worst thing that you can feel is is it was very confusing so i just dove into into music and yeah. and my career and i just that's all i did i worked 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 like crazy trying not to think about about who i really was and 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 i dated women and yeah. and and i would i would hide and date Man, it was really intense. Whenever and this I, is even just before the whole world really knew about you as a solo artist. This mm -hmm. is just even... In the band. Yeah, in the band. A teenager, yeah, totally. So why did your time with Menudo come to an end? And, and when it did, what did you think your future would look like? After five years in the band, it was I was ready to yeah. move on. I was ready to close a cycle. Mm -hmm. And so it happened. Yeah. And I, when I turned 18, I decided to move to New York City. Totally spontaneously, right? I mean, I, I, I don't know if it was spontaneous. It was something that I loved. I loved the city, and I know that I wanted to be an actor. And I auditioned for Tish, NYU School of the yeah. Arts. And, a great school, yeah. And and I said, New York is is going to be my city. Yeah. And then I received an offer to go to Mexico City and do theater. So it was like, okay, what do I do? Do I do I lock myself in a classroom or in a theater and I study at Tish, or should I just go straight to theater and start acting? And and that's what I did. Was it a tough call? Maybe if that was that was thrown at me today. It would have, I guess when you're 18 years old, you're just fearless and you just right. go for it. And right. I felt that was the right thing, and I never hesitated for a second. I, after spending maybe eight months living in New York City, I said, "Okay, it's a wrap. I'm moving to to this great country who was always incredibly generous with yeah. me uh, as an entertainer, uh, as an artist." 
And I started doing theater. And immediately I started doing television series. And I did a movie. And It uh, really cascaded, it right? A, it was a snowball. And, and I will always be very thankful to Mexico for sure. So from the play in Mexico City, then it goes, a producer saw that and cast you in this top Mexican soap opera that you mentioned to reach a star. Mm -hmm. Then music, it seemed like you, that might have been the thing that you had been avoiding going back to to some extent, but then you signed in 1990 at the, you know, all, all of this sort of in quick succession with Sony Discos, which mm -hmm. was their Latin imprint. Were you surprised to find yourself back in music? Well, you know, the theater that I was doing was a musical. Mm -hmm. And then when I started doing this television series, I was, I was, my character was a musician mm -hmm. and I was performing the theme song for mm -hmm. the series. Mm -hmm. So I've that you can't run, but you can't hide. Yeah, right. And obviously the record company, you know, came to me and they right. said, listen, I, will, I think you, I, I think you need to sing. And I'm like, well, if I can do both, why not? And, and I still think the same, yeah. you know, I, I, if you, if you're passionate, passionate about something, never, you know, don't, don't stop, just get ready, yeah. you know, study, never stop studying, right. you know, for me, music is, I, all I know is that I know nothing, same thing with acting, yeah. but I've been surrounded by an amazing group of people, and back then as well, I was surrounded by amazing producers and, 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 and composers, and, and, and apparently I had something to say, and, yeah. and well, it was... It was really interesting, because that first album, which... Like a later album, I guess, was called Ricky Martin, but this one was Spanish language. Mm -hmm. It was different than anything you'd done before because it wasn't Latin music, right? This was, for the first time, I guess, pop. Well, I always, I always did pop, and I still, I, and I, and I think I still do pop. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult for me to say I do Latin music right, right. because there's, you know, if you go to different countries of Latin America, every town has a different sound. Mm -hmm. So, it is a very big responsibility to say I'm a Latin artist and I do Latin music. Because what I do is fusion. I, I grew up in Puerto Rico, of course. I am Hispanic. I am Latin. But the, the Anglo influence musically is very powerful, and, and, and I really enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And I am not purist at all, and I never try to be. Mm -hmm. For many, the genre of, of pop back then was like, you're cooler than that, you know? Because <laughs> maybe you do music, you do jazz, you do Latin music, but pop is not good. And then I said, I, I think you're wrong. I mean, look at the Beatles, right. the most amazing pop boy band. In, in the world so I'm proud to be part of that way yeah. so uh, to make a long story short I I still defend the magic of, of fusion when it comes mm -hmm. to music and I can't limit myself and attach myself to a very specific sound yeah so yeah it's, it's been very interesting and another interesting thing is that very early in your career so that first that first album which is again Ricky Martin in 1991 then you follow that with the second album Mayamaras, and you knew even then at that early time in your career to work with people that, you know, try to reach out and, and try to work with people who have maybe more or different experience than you. And in this case, it was this noted producer, Juan Carlos Calderon. Yeah, Why he ended up producing the album and wrote most of the songs. And you guys, I think it was a conscious decision, it sounds like, for you. You know it's not going to necessarily be the kind of album that is going to sell as well as the first one. Mm -hmm. But it was 
advancing your art? Listen, for me, it was just to be able to be in a studio with the one and only Juan Carlos Calderon. He was, uh, rest in peace, he was a maestro. And and I could, Mi Amarez is a very beautiful album. I don't think it's my album. I think it was his album and I lent my voice. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was successful, not as successful as the first one, but musically speaking, I was very pleased, very content to be part of such an amazing production absolutely and then the third album that was another monster I I locked myself in the studio with people that I've worked with in the past like Casey Porter Roby Draco Rosa and we did uh, Amido Vivir which was a very beautiful romantic album but this this album had a song called Maria Mm -hmm. Un Dos Tres Maria more Latin a lot of very tropical sound and uh, I'm going to be really honest the first time I presented Maria to the record label I said I'm sorry Ricky this is the end of your career (laughs) and it became that song became number one in 50 something countries (laughs) in Spanish I guess I needed to take risks and uh, because my sound was more romantic it was more ballads and when I decided to work with an accordion and and to really have fun with congas and timbales and, and, and very Afro-Caribbean sound, people people freaked out, and yeah. I was so happy about it. I yeah. was very pleased, and I'm very. I was ready for f- to present this kind of sound. Yeah, but yeah, people were nervous. <laughs> I I don't need to say that they don't work in the industry anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you about the label where you were at Sony. I'm still at Sony, and still are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also about a guy who's very associated with it, Tommy Matola. Oh my God! Yeah. I want to ask you because it seems like. I believe Sony also had J-Lo and Mark Anthony, and they seem to have talked about the fact that, or at least it's the way it's been written about as in sort of recent history, that they were one of the, maybe the, the leading champion of Latin music artists in America. Mm-hmm. Do you think they just kind of lucked into the fact that they had so many Latin artists who, who did well, or were they actually seeking to break into that? Did they see that there was the potential for you know, this kind, what, what basically what you and those others mm. ushered in. So I would say that around in 1996, I become the first Latin American artist to break in in Spain. Mm-hmm. And then be, Spain became the diving board to the rest of Europe. And, and then because of what was happening with Maria in Europe, obviously, you know, it became contagious. And I went to Asia, I went to India. I remember being in India performing for 52,000 people. I only had one single that was known, and it was in Spanish. It was really That's interesting. Amazing. So, and, 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 and I was moving numbers. Uh, I mean, the record company was saying, what's going on here? This Something is happening. Uh-huh. And it was, mind you, it was, I, I had bilingual versions but mm-hmm. it was mainly in Spanish and people like I said in China and in India were singing in Spanish then then FIFA the World Cup yeah the World Cup Association saw what was happening with my music and with my image and they said hey Rike we would love for you to do the official anthem for the next World Cup in 1998 in France mm-hmm. so I I locked myself in the studio with Desmond Child and Robbie Draco Rosa and I and I recorded the Cup of Life. That song became number one in Spanish. La Copa de in, la Vida. In La Copa de la Vida in seventy something countries, obviously, with you know, uniting music and sports yeah. two major forces. And then I came to the US yes. because I was invited to perform at the Grammys. I don't want to get too far ahead because I want to talk about each of these things, but okay. that but you think that like basically did you feel when you were in those early days before, you know, 
you just totally exploded here. I mean, you were still doing very well, but did you feel that Sony was actively, not just you, but with mm-hmm. others, they saw a potential for yeah. Latin music to explode in America? Listen, I must give a lot of credit to a lot of artists mm-hmm. that have done amazingly well mm-hmm. before me. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Celia Cruz. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Gloria Estefan. Mm-hmm. These are my mentors. These are people that I, when I was growing up, I, I looked at, you know, looked up to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what Gloria Estefan did with Conga around the world in the 80s was something super powerful. And she was a, she was a force. She was a force that we all looked up looked up to and then a decade later i guess it was my turn Mm -hmm. but mind you all i did a decade before i came to america to perform all i did was work and at the same time i was kind of educating the world about the difference differences and similarities about about music in latin america Mm -hmm. the difference between cuba Puerto Rico and Costa Rica and Argentina and Brazil and Mexico. It was a very beautiful mission, yeah. to be honest, and, and you know, to, to be able to open up people's eyes and, yeah. and, and, and critics about how complicated music is in yeah. Latin America is, is not a simple, oh, yeah, salsa is everything. No, no, <laughs> there's salsa, there's rumba, there's mambo, there's tango, there's, there's a lot. Mm-hmm. There's a lot in, in, in this continent to play with. Whatever. I'm, what I'm going with this yeah. is that, uh, that uh, the record company, once again, saw the, saw the numbers and mm-hmm. saw, you know, that the, the needle was moving. Yeah. And, and then I must give a lot of credit to my manager back then at the time who, who one way or another, found a spot at the Grammys to yeah. perform that night. Obviously, I mean, if you look back then at the Billboard magazine, I was... I was in every page yeah. because I was crossing over with the Cup of Life um, in a very significant way. So, yeah. Let's zero in on that because mm-hmm. I don't know if you realize this, but this week is 20 years since the World Cup performance of Cup of Life. That's by true. You. That's true. And so that then, I guess, I don't know if it was always intended to be, but I think it became a part of your fourth album that was coming out soon after, Vuelve, right? Vuelve, yeah. So Vuelve then, to connect this World Cup to the Grammys... Welve gets nominated for best Latin pop Latin pop album. Mm-hmm. So you would have been at the Grammys even if you weren't performing. But on February twenty fourth, ninety nine, at the Shrine Auditorium in L.A., you're there as a nominee, but also now to perform mm-hmm. La Copa de la Vida. Mm-hmm. And I think even before your performance, you won, right? You won in your category. Was that before or after? I performed. And, and then, then what? And the next category that was announced was, okay. was mine. Even so better. Just, yeah. They told me, just wait here. You, can, right. you, you have no time to go sit down. You have to wait here backstage. Right. Well, so <laughs> can you describe the reaction to your performance that night? Because it really seems like that was clearly the turning point in the career. Not Again, not that it wasn't going really well before, mm-hmm. but this is now a whole new world after that. So what was the reaction and why do you think it just popped that night? We have to let music speak for itself. I think it was a great track. Yeah. And it was, you know, once again, we go back to fusion. Melodically, it was very pop. But if we had we had the sounds. The sounds were very... African, Brazilian, Caribbean. So a lot of different cultures could relate to this music. Uh-huh. And and then that song, I had been performing that song for more than a year all over the world. So for me to perform that song, it doesn't matter who was in front of me, it was right. a walk in the park. Right. I just really wanted to do it. And, and I think that the audience, number one, got the sounds. They felt the energy with the sounds. And then obviously 
the the performance. I was very comfortable. I was I was not nervous. I just, I just wanted to do it. Yeah. And I think I've been I had been rehearsing for that moment for a whole year. Mm -hmm. So it was more than anything. It was just give it to me. I'm, and let's just uh, remind listeners. Standing ovation that, you know, for a guy who in this country was still, you know, finding a following, that was a <laughs> major thing. The audience in front of you who was seen going nuts on TV, Sting, Madonna, Pavarotti. <laughs> and then I understand that Madonna and Sting were so impressed that they came backstage to tell you how great they thought it was. Okay, you're saying this, huh? You're saying this, my heart is beating faster. Yeah. It's, uh, it was a very beautiful evening and I will never forget. Um, it was, everything was so fast for me back then. I'm gonna be honest, I wasn't even able to enjoy my night and go out partying with my Grammy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I had to, right after that show, I had to hop on a plane and go to Italy because next morning I was performing at the San Remo Music Festival. So I get to Italy and, and I go to sleep and I wake up in the morning and I'm receiving a phone call from Madonna and I'm receiving a <laughs> phone call from the one and only Sting. I was you know, super humbled, but I didn't know what, what was going on. And then two, three months later, I was, I was locked in the studio with Madonna and I was doing a duet with her. It was, it was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot. But Did um, you get the sense that, you know, from people around you, from the record label that, all right, we've just seen something that you almost never see happen at the Grammys where truly like a star is born in that mm. moment. And now we better not let too much time pass before we get out this first English language album, right? Because Ricky Martin, mm -hmm. the album came out just a few months later. But the thing was almost ready. It was ready already. It was almost ready. It was almost ready. And believe it or not, when we were about to you know, rap, mastering the album, mm -hmm. I shouldn't say mastering the album, with all the mixes, mm -hmm. and Living La Vida Loca was born. So what I'm trying to say is that this album was almost going to be released without Living La Vida oh Loca. But three days before I walked into the studio with Madonna, we were done with Living La Vida Loca, so I showed her <laughs> what I was presenting, and she was like, yep, okay, let's, I'm ready to go into the studio with you. It was a very beautiful moment. I, 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 I will always go back to it it was overwhelming yeah but then again how can i say this i'm trying to go back to the menudo yeah, days and yeah. everything that i learned back in the beginning of my career when i was only 12 years old until i was 17 it was all, it was all about discipline it was it was about uh, how important it was to be focused and, uh -huh. and and it was military to be honest so I, I i give a lot of credit to my managers back uh -huh. then because once again all i did all I did was was work. Mm -hmm. I can also say that I must give a little bit of credit to me being in the closet because that was something that I was trying to avoid. I don't want to think about this. So what do we do? Not the thing. Let's go into the studio. It's a beautiful era, yeah. beautiful time. Well, just to contextualize it, because mm -hmm. I mean, anyone who was alive remembers this, but we now have, it's it's been now almost 20 years since that album. It's crazy. It's and crazy. so just to remind people how huge it was, Number one on the Billboard 200, 661,000 copies sold in the first week, which was the biggest first week in the history of Columbia or Sony Records. Ultimately sold 8 million copies, 8 million plus, which made it one of the biggest singles ever and mm. the most successful album debut by a Hispanic artist in Billboard history. A week after it debuted, you're on the cover of Time. I think a week <laughs> after that, you're on the cover of Newsweek. The Time cover, by the way, the headline was Latin Music Goes Pop. You had women and men needing to be resuscitated when they were near you, <laughs> Come on, uh, which I think still happens, I'm sure. But how did you 
again, you'd ex- you'd had a taste of fame certainly mm-hmm. before that, but when it went to this insane level in that immediate aftermath mm-hmm. of the album, how did you handle that? More work. Yeah. <laughs> More work. I I'm, I'm at this point I was I was really confused and and I every time I could I would hop on a plane and I would go to India. And, and I started meditating a lot, and I spent months up in the mountains in, in the Himalayas, and I spent time in ashrams in India doing yoga and, and digging deep. Uh-huh. And, and what, what is it that I need in order for me to be happy? Is it all the glamour? Is it the private jets, the big suites, and the penthouses in New York City or Paris, whatever? And, and it was at least three years of very heavy spiritual quest. And I was, I was confronted with a lot of demons that I, I needed to deal with. So I, once again, I surrendered to spirituality uh-huh. more than any religion. It was just about me searching within. Uh-huh. And that gave me a lot of balance. And, and that is something that I still do whenever I get out of focus, uh, which could, could happen to anyone. Yeah. So I give a lot of credit to India. Yeah. And, and India became like a little cradle that I would go to. Because when you're there, you're not dealing with paparazzi or crazy women and men <laughs> going after well, you. Well, you know, to be honest, actually, I, I told you in the beginning of the yeah. interview that I was I performed in New Delhi for 55,000 so people. couldn't even get away there. Yeah, but it's <laughs> funny because if we're talking about one billion mm-hmm. people living in India, and yeah. if, let's just say, I'm throwing a number out yeah. there, and, and if and if I say that maybe 500 million mm-hmm. have access to television or anything that has to do with Western communications like music, etc. Uh, the rest didn't know who I was. <laughs> and I was living in little villages yeah. in, in the southeast side of, uh, of India, a little town called Puri, for right. example. And, and so I was able to just be. No live and love it loca. <laughs> I was not living love it loca, although my mom would think that I was yeah, crazy because I was in the other side of the world in India, right. you know, walking barefoot right. around di- different cities. Well, I guess I would be killed by some listeners if I didn't just ask you a little bit more about that song that changed things in a in a way with Live and Love Vida Loca. Mm. You mentioned that it was it almost didn't even make it onto that album. So how did it come about? And when it did, did you anticipate even let's say pre that Madonna conversation Mm -hmm. that this had the potential to pop in a different way than all these other great songs you've been associated with prior to that so how did it come about and did you realize that it was potentially going to be that special because I know that the year it came out it was (laughs) I remember for a full year because it was the year all my friends were having their bar and bat mitzvahs (laughs) so I don't think there was a weekend where I didn't hear it 20 times (laughs) you know to be honest I I, you know so Draco and Desmond Child they called me and said Rick stop hold on we need you to hear something (laughs) and my words were like what the fuck is this (laughs) I I mean to be honest it's the the sound of that song is is brilliant and and you still listen to it today Mm -hmm. and it's and it's just as powerful. We have we have ska and we have Latin sounds and we have even rock and mm-hmm. and for sure it's one of those songs that I need to perform still. You don't uh, mind. Some people like we just recently had Barbara Streisand on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. She said basically that if she never has to sing the way we were again, <laughs> she's happy. <laughs> she's happy with it. But then again, everybody wants to listen to That's her singing that song. That's right. I have a couple of songs that I said, okay, enough. But then again, when I get the reaction of the crowd, yeah. 
you know, that's what I live off. Yeah. You know, the how how people and you know, when, when people sing "Living La Vida Loca" or "The Cup of Life" yeah. or "Maria," you know, it's these are songs that even if I'm tired of them, I just have to say one, two, three, four, and and wait for the reaction of the crowd, yeah. and, and that is my meal. <laughs> just for the record, I mean, we know that "La Vida Loca" translates basically "Crazy Life," right? Mm -hmm. To find "La Vida Loca." If anyone was could have been living it, it would have been you after putting that song out. Right. And no, no, it's what I was living before. before yeah, right. <laughs> Obviously, it's not what the music talks about. But when I hear "Living La Vida Loca," I was was you know waking up in a city, having lunch in another city, and having dinner in another <laughs> continent, which actually happened. Once I woke up in Brussels and I had I had lunch in Paris, and then I hopped in a plane and I had dinner in Rio de Janeiro. It's, uh, it's, it's, that was my life, yeah. and, and I didn't know how to do it any other way. I mean, everybody told me, Rick, in order for you to make it to the top, you have to work like crazy. And then I had a crazier manager who was very happy just, you know, filling up that schedule and right. being really strategic, but also compulsive about anything that had to do with music back in the days. So. so someone listening to this might wonder, because you were working so hard, were you able to enjoy this exciting moment that few people have had anything like ever? Mm -hmm. And the other reason I guess they might wonder that is because still, and for years after that, mm -hmm. you still had this secret that you had to kind of maintain about your own you know, self so that you couldn't fully be true to yourself yeah, or authentic yeah. or whatever. Yeah, so, but at this point, everybody was asking me. That's what I was going to say. At this point, everybody was So asking. when somebody like Barbara Walters, who probably was the most aggressive about mm -hmm. asking you a question that I mm -hmm. think you clearly were not anxious to deal with, like when you're getting those questions, mm -hmm. were you just basically throughout even this most successful you know, moment anyone could mm -hmm. have, could you be happier? Were you constantly living in fear that somehow it could be derailed? Yeah, I was totally living in fear. And, and now I, th I look back and I and you don't know how many times I, I said, I mean, Barbara Walter asked me if I was gay. Why didn't I just say yes, for God's sakes, right? But well, why it, didn't you? There, was well, re there were no, reasons. No, 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 it was not my moment. It yeah. was not my moment. And this is something that I learned and I, and I talk about. It's a very beautiful metaphor. You know, when you have an egg, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and when you open the egg from the outside, what do you get? Death. Mm -hmm. If you let the egg be open from within, what do you get? Life. Mm -hmm. So men and women that are struggling with their sexual identity, the worst you can do to them is try to out them. Right. Because this is a process that we all have to go through our own way. I mean, yes, I do have my moments where I say, my God, why did I say yes then? But then I have to accept the fact that I was so not ready. I, I was still living with a lot of internalized homophobia. And I mean, back then that was even, that was a concept that I didn't even know existed. That, that I didn't even know that there was a name for it. <laughs> so I just took my time and I kept on working until I got tired of people trying to, you know, get out of me something that I was not ready not to accept because in my world, in my life, I was living f fully. I was, you know, I had my relationship with men and I, and all my friends and my family, they all knew about me, but I just did not want to do it publicly back then. So I was um, reading a big Rolling Stone, I think, cover article that was written right after living La Vida Loca and everything. Mm -hmm. And for a few years there, when people would, again, get nosy as they do, mm -hmm. I think with most famous people, you talked about the fact that there was a Mexican singer, I think, and a TV presenter and different couple of different women who you said you'd been in dated. relationships with and dated. dated. Yes. Was that 
true or was that a cover story to not have know. to address? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I was trying to convince myself that I this is was that this was right. And that maybe, uh, you know, being 18, 19, 20 years old, you say if this was my reality, then things would be so much easier. I guess it's part of my karmic journey, my friend. And, and, it's, and it's what I had to go through. And it's completely different to anyone else. Like, yeah. I, you know, I can't compare you, your life. Mm -hmm. It's just the way it is. And now that force, let's, let me put it this way. For so many years, Keeping this secret mm -hmm. only gave me strength and mm -hmm. power with pride and joy, be able to talk to those that are struggling, mm -hmm. like I struggled. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been doing. As part of my journey, I, I write a book and I talk mm -hmm. about what I went through mm -hmm. and my feelings and my, you know, how uncertain I felt about life in general. And, and there's nothing more beautiful than, than have people come to me and say, yo, Rick, thank you so much because of your book. I get to understand my father better who mm -hmm. happens to be gay. And I get to understand my sister better who happens to be no, that's a lesbian. Great. So, the only thing that, and the last thing I'll ask you about mm -hmm. that, subject is just, just reading up on that period. It seems like the bummer of it is that there were people around you mm -hmm. who maybe could have said, when you're on the do fence, it, come out. do it. Yeah, and yeah, instead... Yeah. What were they telling you the consequences no, would no, no. be? No, no, They were saying, if I come out, this is the end of your career. Because? Because no one is ready to deal with a pop icon that is out as a homosexual. They and think the girls are going to stop screaming and come in yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They and I'm sure still today there's a lot of people that, f feel that, that have that feel that way, you know. Um, Plus, um, in fairness to you, and this was to quote back something you said, quote, I already felt it was hard to be a Latino in Hollywood. What could have been more difficult than being Latino and gay? And gay in Hollywood, yeah. I mean, I was checking all the boxes pretty much, and, <laughs> and I just, once again, I was afraid. Yeah. A year after Ricky Martin, the debut English language album, was soundloaded, the second English language album, was there great pressure to follow... Like, how does one follow such yeah. a huge success? For me, I don't think it was a mistake, but I would have done it differently. What part? To release an album mm -hmm. immediately after Living mm -hmm. La Vida Loca, a self-titled album, Ricky Martin. Mm -hmm. I think after the madness that I was dealing with, it would have been smart for me to stop and disconnect for a, for a minute and decompress mm -hmm. and, and maybe just spend time at home instead of from the road, go back into the Let's studio, see. record because the record company wants another album now. So obviously I didn't have time to analyze the, the stories that I wanted to talk about or even the sounds that I wanted to play with. And it's not the album that I, I am most proud of. Well, we should, t you know, just know it still was very successful. And people, you know, I think if there's one single they remember from it, it's She Bangs, She right? Bangs, yeah. But a lot of people thought that She Bangs was still part of the, the, first the Living one, La Vida Loca Because it was so soon after. It was so soon after, yeah. And you so also soon. had your duet with Christina Aguilera. As well, yeah. yeah uh, Nobody course. Wants to Be Lonely. Yeah, yeah. So it sold 4 million copies, which if the first album not had bad. not existed, it's it would have sounded amazing, but it's not, it's it's not, not 15 million. But yeah. it was after that that you finally did take a little bit of a break, right? Because you said you knew it was necessary when you started getting pissed off on stage, just being there, right? Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, it's just what happened that, you know, the, the only thing that I loved back then about the entertainment industry was being on stage mm -hmm. because anything else was a struggle. Even writing music was 
painful because what am I talking about? Mm-hmm. What can I talk about without people knowing? Et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> right, you know what I mean? Right, and right. and then creating music and then doing interviews. The other mm-hmm. side of yeah. that it's also extremely important for for this industry. Well, people wanted to talk about my sexuality. Right. So this is something that I don't like to do right. either. So um, the only thing, my escape was being on stage. Mm-hmm. But then I was just tired. Mm-hmm. I was physically Sure. I'm mentally tired. I needed a holiday. Yeah. I needed to go home and, and just walk barefoot and, right. and just be in silence mm-hmm. with, with my friends. Or just go back to India. Yeah, you know, right. I, it doesn't matter. I really needed to do that and not think about, okay, you only have two months to do this. You have to go back on the road. Yeah. So then you basically, it looks more or less like three-year period where you did not put out an album. And then I, I, did, I, yeah. I read your your description of when you go to your label and say all right guys i'm ready to come back but guess what it's gonna be spanish language it's gonna be spanish with yeah. almas del silencio yeah. in 2003 mm-hmm. crossing back over everybody's calling you the, the crossover artist now you're gonna go back over why was that important to you to not let go of your own roots in a way so i think it was very important for me to go back to my origins mm-hmm. in the sense that I had a very big Hispanic audience that was saying, yeah, right, we're very happy for what you're going through. We love your music. Talk to us in Spanish, right. you know, and uh, and I thought it was it was important for me to go back there more than a basic need. It was it was a mix of strategy mm-hmm. and what I needed as an artist. Yeah, very happy. We did pretty yeah. well with that album that and, and I still perform music from that album. So between that album, which was mm-hmm. 2003 and let's say 2010. You were still doing a lot of work, and there were albums in there. There was Life in 2005, Music, Alma, and Sexo in 2011. Well, I guess that's outside of 2010, but so there was that the one unplug, other album in there. The Unplug also the was unplug, very important. Yeah, the unplug. Me. Yes, but the pace obviously was not insane, right, for a little while there. Had you sort of grown tired of the business? Had the business for a little while grown tired of you? How would you describe that slower period, including, by the way, I think it was a deliberate hiatus from 2007 to 2010, right? Yeah, I became a father. Yeah. I wanted to write my book. book. I think my book also, I keep coming back to my book, but I think it's important because it was a year where it was a very beautiful exercise Mm -hmm. that I needed to do in order for me to really hold on a second. Mm -hmm. What is missing? Mm -hmm. Let's write about this. Let's, Let's do an inventory of where you are and who you you know where you've been and I said okay perfect I, I can see all these images and I I love writing and okay let's talk about this but there was a missing link always <laughs> a missing link I did it I couldn't find the end of the book and I couldn't find and it was all because I I wasn't accepting who I was mm-hmm. mind you three years in silence where I was changing diapers and (laughs) feeding my twin boys, which was the most beautiful project, the most beautiful project of my life. Mm -hmm. But since I was at home, I was also doing music, but I was writing. But then again, hold on a second. I know where I'm at and I know what I need to be complete. And I just needed to write that tweet. I, I needed to. Or was to, it a tweet or a statement on your website, right? Well, yeah, yeah. I wrote a. a I wrote a, like a little open letter, but yeah. it was you know social media back then. Twitter yeah. was everything, yeah. and, it was, and I sent it on, on Twitter. Do you remember how you worded the coming out? This I am. Was, I am extremely. I am a fortunate. I am lucky to say that I'm a fortunate homosexual man. Something like that. Yeah, I am proud to say that I am a fortunate homosexual yeah. man. Yeah. This is in 2010. <laughs> You were 38 years old, mm-hmm. and now you could probably breathe. Like the world didn't 
fall yeah. apart. No, people on didn't. The contrary, right. it got better. I mean, and and and. Were you worried that there could be even at, at that, that late point still? You were you were you worried or did no, you no, know? I didn't care. Yeah. No, I didn't care. I was pleased. I was very happy for who I was. I mean, I mean, of course, I love music and I love being on stage. And I actually say it in that letter. I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen after you all you all read this. I didn't say I don't care. Right. But the time that I spent writing this letter was full of joy, and 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 I was crying when I was writing it. But it was cathartic. It was so liberating, and if, and and I've, I never felt better in my life. So really, I was at ease with whatever the outcome was going to be. That was, I let go of any sort of control. And and I had no plan. I didn't have a plan A or a plan B. Mm -hmm. I, I just didn't care. I was fine. My kids were healthy. Mm -hmm. The most important thing that I did it was because I, if I didn't do it, I was pretty much teaching my kids how to lie. Mm -hmm. and And that's not what I became a father for. And... You met your husband in what year? I got married last year. Yes. I have never been married before. Okay. Um, but I was in a relationship back yes. then. Yes, yes. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it was nice. You could just know it more. It was perfect. Yeah. It was perfect. I mean, my life was was perfect. And I, yeah, for a moment I thought that it was probably the end of my career, but what happened is I, within two days I got one million followers. <laughs> you were <laughs> back. Yeah. You know, so it yeah. was like, well, I guess, I guess maybe a lot of people deleted me from their social media and another million right, came back. Right. So it was and you didn't weird. want the, who wants those other people anyway? Exactly. So the other thing though that came out of that though, it seems like probably not long after, so that was 2010. In 2012, you were in both an episode of Glee and on Broadway in mm -hmm. a revival of Evita. Yeah. So it seems like there was a decision that had to have happened before 2012 to maybe focus again a little bit more on acting, to get back in the game and do some acting. And I wondered if that maybe started with, it must have in some ways coincided with meeting Ryan Murphy. So how did that yeah. first happen? <laughs> well, you know that when I was in this quote unquote sabbatical, mm -hmm. I, I knew that I wanted to go back to, to Broadway mm -hmm. because the experience that I had before doing Les Mis was amazing, it was so beautiful. And I am gonna give a lot of credit to my agent from CAA, Joe Makoda, who went to see my concert on the tour before I had my kids. And he goes, what, what do you want to do? And I'm like, ah, Broadway, I need to go back to theater. I need to do theater. And he immediately, he went full force into putting together this magnificent show. Mm -hmm. It almost took like five years to put together. So, uh, and then right. in the middle of this process, I received a phone call from Ryan Murphy saying, hey, I would love to have you in, in one of my episodes of Glee. And what are you going to say? Let me think about it. No, <laughs> of course not. You just go, of course, Ryan. I mean, honored. How and can this, we do this? This was the 12th episode of the third season called The Spanish Teacher. You were the night school Spanish teacher. And I guess that was the beginning of you and Ryan. And my, my relationship with yeah. Ryan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ryan, it's, I mean, we, we all know Ryan Murphy. He is really intense. He is very passionate. And when he believes, he believes. And the most beautiful thing about being able to work with him is that he tells you what he needs and then you can do whatever you want. As an actor, as an entertainer, there's there's nothing better than that. I mean, and obviously, yes, then I do 
Broadway, and I was it was a whole year uh, doing Evita. Then I moved to Australia when I was being a, a coach on, on The Voice Australia. Mm-hmm. So I was living in Australia on and off for mm-hmm. three years, mm-hmm. and then I kept on touring for right. more than two and a half years, maybe three. And then I meet who is today my husband, and I said, "Okay, I mean, do you want to go on the road with me? Let's go." He <laughs> went on the road with me for a whole—that was the test—for a whole year, <laughs> and then and then I said, "Okay, eventually we're going to need to land somewhere. <laughs> where where are we going to land?" Right. He used to live in London, and I said, "I love London, but for my family, my right. kids, business purpose." Have you ever been to LA? I said, <laughs> "No, never been to LA." So let's let's we we can live between London, Puerto Rico, and LA. Mm-hmm. So we came here. And my friend, two weeks after we landed here, I got another phone call from Ryan Murphy. Yeah, so was that just coincidental, or he knew that you had just moved back? I don't know. Or that you'd moved I have here? no idea. You don't know? I have no idea. But basically, what did I, I say? I didn't even know that I was officially living here. I, was, I know that I was living here, <laughs> but there was, uh, you know, when it's like when you... When you throw a thought out there yeah. and you know and hope for the that best, happened. you know what would be perfect? Well, for me to land in L.A. and and to be able to work as an actor, right. everybody would ask me, Rick, when are you going back to acting? And I said, <laughs> Well, I would love to go back to acting. The moment I have the opportunity to work with an amazing producer, with great directors, with an incredible group of talented actors, and and whenever I'm able to tell a very important story. Uh, you gotta be careful with what you wish for. Well, it's amazing because <laughs> that's exactly what happened. Yeah, and and to add to the sort of stars aligning in a weird way, just you had been living in Miami when yeah. Versace was murdered there. That's true. Even though I was spending most of the time in Europe because mm-hmm. of what was happening yes. musically yes. in my career, yes, I I lived in Miami when this happened, and I remember the fear of walking out. After he was killed. After he was killed and, and, and going for a walk because you you knew that there was a serial killer mm-hmm. living in Miami Beach and the FBI hadn't found this guy. Mm-hmm. So it was, it, it just changed Miami forever. Had you ever met Versace? I know you guys never, ran in similar circles. I never met him and I never met his family and I was invited to, to his house in Miami Beach many times uh, for different parties and event but back in the day I had a I had a campaign with with Giorgio Armani so it was <laughs> a little if, awkward if, yeah. if Mr. Armani would have seen me hanging out no, with, no. in the Versace you know party would be like oh, what's going on here right that's fair enough so when when Ryan came to you and did he come thinking of you specifically for the part of this Antonio. character, Antonio, his lover of 15 years? Yes. Or he did say specifically yes. that? he was very specific about what he had for And me. what to you was the most appealing, but also the most frightening aspect of I was that? never afraid. Nothing? I was never afraid. First of all, I, well, my first question was like, wow, 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 okay. And who's going to play Donatella? Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, no one knows. You're the first person that knows. It's going to be Penelope. What? Okay, I know Penelope. I love Penelope. We've worked in an orphanage in India many, many years ago. And uh, so I, I, know, I know her since then. And then I knew who was going to play Gianni Versace because I know Edgar. You do. Edgar is a very good friend. Mm-hmm. And actually, he was the only person that knew that I was going to have dinner <laughs> with Ryan. Because when I get this phone call from Ryan, I go, hey, Edgar, guess who I'm having dinner with? And he goes like, no. <laughs> Are you having dinner with Ryan Murphy? And I'm like, yes, you're going to play Antonio. So Edgar kind of tells me. That's awesome. 
And then obviously when I sit down and I ask him, I ask, I ask Ryan, who's gonna, who's gonna play Donatella, I tell him, I am not gonna ask you who's gonna play Gianni because I already know. And I right. want you to know that I, I know Edgar and he's my brother and I love him. And Ryan teared up and he said, this is all I needed to hear. This is all I needed to hear. Now I know that this is gonna go somewhere. And since then I started getting ready for this character. Can you talk about how you did that? Because you had to have a bit of an accent. I read that you took it so seriously that you stayed in character for most of the time that you were in the, that you guys were filming in the Ocean Drive. In the villa. Villa that he used to live in. Yeah, we were there for what, 15 days, maybe a little bit more. And it was the first time that I was separated you know, away from my my kids and and my husband because the scenes that I was going to be shooting were so dark, mm-hmm. and and obviously my husband and my kids represent completely the opposite and and I wanted to stay really focused and and I mean I I knew this this was this was a character that that was going to change my life, mm-hmm. but forget about what it was going to do to me. I was also thinking about what it what it would do to society in general and what it would do to Antonio. I had the opportunity to talk to Antonio himself. You had to track him down, right? <laughs> it was a bit difficult because he's a bit disconnected. He he wants nothing to do with with the spotlight or anything. So I yes, I, I got to talk to him and and I told him, Antonio, I just want you to know that I'm doing this because I think it's important that, that we shed some light into what you and Johnny represent. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't do it if it wasn't because because of the light that I see and what you two created together. And he was extremely generous. He was very open and he went on to details about what he felt and you know when when he found the body and and what it was for him after the funeral and 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 he was also very specific about his suicide attempts and everything that you know his chain of thought and mm-hmm. how lucky I am as an actor that I that I get to literally write down the emotions that the person went through. Mm-hmm. So I, I just wanted to focus on those conversations that we were having, Antonio and I, and, and I wanted no interruptions. And, and this is all I, I don't want to sound dramatic, but it, uh, I'm trying to look for words. It, mm-hmm. This is all I lived for, mm-hmm. for the entire pretty much year that yeah. we were, that I started getting ready as an actor and then the, the long months that we were shooting. Well, the way I hope we can close here is to just prompt you to just say a few words about a few of the most powerful scenes that you have in this show, because we can remind listeners you were so good in them. You're now Emmy nominee, Ricky Martin. So let's, let's remind them why that happened. That didn't happen by accident. So just a few of these different Mm -hmm. moments. And if you haven't seen the show yet, fast forward a little bit, because I don't want to give any of it. But basically there's a scene where you find Johnny's body and hold him as he's dying. Yeah. You asked to do something there that wasn't planned, right? Yeah. Yeah. When I was talking to Antonio, he go, but Ricky, I never touched the body when I found him. And he was referring to some paparazzi shots that were taken as I was shooting this scene. So he saw that you were holding the Yeah, body. yeah. I mean, next day, right. the day after we shot, he was like, I never touched him, Ricky. I never touched him. And I'm like, Antonio, this is how it goes. 
we're not trying to do a photo of the moment. We're trying to do a painting of the moment. And if we if we do a painting, we add and get rid of colors. I know, obviously, that this must create a little bit of... Uh, you must feel uncomfortable about this because it, it's not what you... how you reacted. It's not what you did. But when I saw the body, I had to hold him. And I had to to feel his skin. I was completely covered in blood. I think that is something that I really needed to go through. And I asked Ryan, please let me touch him. Let me hold him in my arms. Because that was not in the script. That was not in the script. And Ryan was like, go, just do it, mm -hmm. do it. And I, and I asked Edgar, can I? He goes like, don't ask me, do it. Mm -hmm. And I just held him for hours. We were under the sun for hours. And it was all about my crying and my anger and my frustration with the cops that were doing whatever they needed to do to get an ambulance. And, and it was really, really intense. But then I see the pictures and I see the scene and I'm like, wow, th this became La Pieta. And if we go into Catholicism and the spirituality and what Johnny was, uh, you know, he was uh, Catholic, you know, we were Italians. And it, it just added to the to the moment it just added to the drama absolutely and then obviously antonio understood and he goes i get it i get it it's fantastic and it's and it's freedom it's it's poetic license you know and that's nice that he and then he understood board. and yeah. then and then obviously when the detectives were asking me all kinds of questions where they even kind of say maybe it was you uh, and then and then you know they're asking me about but you 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 would hire escorts to this is another one that i wanted to come to here with a scene where you in a way, are being forced, you, Ricky Martin, are being forced to go back and deal with all the attitudes towards gay people that existed in the 90s. In the 90s. Yeah. And be careful, because still, a lot of a lot men of and women are yeah. dealing with exactly that. A lot of ignorance and a lot of judgment in how, you know, what you do behind closed doors. So, yes, I felt invaded. I, it, the actor was amazing. He was very aggressive, and he was... He was very arrogant, and you know, and then he would hide it with, I'm just trying to help you here. <laughs> <laughs> well, another scene that takes place on that same day, I don't know if it was filmed on that same day, is one where you wind up looking in a mirror. How yeah. did that happen? Well, that was not in the script. Mm -hmm. And we're dealing with maybe 12 or 14 hours of shooting and uh, me completely covered in blood. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, Ryan looks at me, he goes like, look at yourself in the mirror. And, I, and, and I'm like, wait. And he's like, wait, cameras, come on. And so he, he brought the dolly and, and I'm just washing, washing my hands. It's the first, first time after 12 hours after being, because mind you, the crime happened really early in the morning and then immediately the interrogation. And I was not allowed to move because they didn't know if I was a killer. They didn't know if I had anything to do. They didn't, I mean, I had blood. Maybe I had... Like DNA or something. Yes, maybe, exactly. So I was... You see, and then this is me living as Antonio and then also dealing with the reality of uh, a day in a, on set. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But Ryan said, like, no, we need this. Mm -hmm. We need we need the pain that you have in your face. We need the uncertainty. We, we need the insecurity. Look at yourself in the mirror and let me shoot it. Especially... It's, I, I think the New York Times or one of the reviews noted that what makes it extra jarring, that scene, is that for 20 plus years, when the public has seen Ricky Martin, we associate you with kind of being an upbeat guy with a big, yeah, beautiful yeah, yeah. smile and all this. So yeah. to see you in that state, 
<laughs> is extra jarring. You know, I know that we're not looking at it thinking Ricky Martin, but I mean, this is still, it, it hammered home the point, I think, that... So anyway, it was very difficult. It was very difficult to be honest, and I was very happy <laughs> when people go, "Dude, Rick, I forgot it was you," and yeah. I'm like, ah, yeah. Great. "Yeah, it was music to my ears." But it wasn't. It wasn't easy at all. I it bet. wasn't easy at all, and I was very lucky to say, you know, I was, I was, you know, Penelope was incredibly generous, and and obviously Edgar mm-hmm. as well, and and Ryan. I felt protected. I, I was. I felt taken care of, and and I also felt trusted of the choices that I had to make as an actor to take the scene to the next level. I feel the luckiest man in the world. No, it's great. Yeah. And and the last scene I want to ask you about, and I've saved this one for last mm-hmm. because I think there really is great subtext here. Is the one where, well, let's set it up this way. You've said that you had plenty of romantic partners over the years who, in a way, you before you could come out, you had to treat in a way like Johnny had to treat Antonio, Antonio for a while, sort of them. kept in the background, in the shadows, in the closet. So what was it like for you then to film the scene where Johnny comes out? Yes, and it includes and includes Antonio, and it was very emotional it because was. then I I remember when it was in my life when it was the other way around when I was just um, you know hiding my relationships and and I was I went out with men that were completely comfortable with their sexual identity they were out and because they were you know dating me they had to kind of like go back into the closet mm-hmm. so when I am. Shooting a scene where Johnny is coming out and he's introducing me as his partner. And my head went in every direction, and and I, I think you can see the the joy and and, but at the same time the the, the uncertainty of what's going to happen from now on, right. or or I can't believe this is happening. It was a very beautiful scene. I had to give Edgar a hug after we shot, and I I said thank you because you just, I could see the horizon clearer. And I just hope we can help a lot of couples that that are going through this at the moment with this scene. Well, the show, obviously, everyone's loved and embraced in a huge way. We saw this at the Emmy nominations. I think there's more actors from... Assassination of Johnny Versace, who are going to be nominated at the Emmys than any other show. Anyway, it's just like a cast party. But I want to just close by asking you, what is this moment where not only did you get a great opportunity to act in an important project, but you did well enough at it, very well, to get this kind of personal recognition as well with your Emmy nomination? Does this mean that the next chapter is going to be more focused on acting than the last one or is it still going to be juggling the music and the acting not to mention the family just what what do you see as you know the next uh few years no for sure music will always be there i love going into the studio and creating music i and i love performing and seeing the reaction of an audience i think that's something very beautiful but i i I also believe that i'm a storyteller and if once again if i have the opportunity to be surrounded by an amazing group of people of creative once again director producers and actors and we can tell a story that could be of impact for the world i I am going to commit to it. And once again, I am so thankful that my peers uh-huh. are kind of telling me you're doing a good job. Listen, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen at the Emmys. I don't know if I'm going to win or not. But the fact that I am 
that I've been nominated, I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna keep that, yeah. and I will dance the night away with with <laughs> with the fact that I will always be a, yeah, an Emmy nominated away, actor, yeah. you know. And uh, but this is the beginning for me in the sense that I I only want to keep getting ready for more, and I will always be I will I'll keep studying, and I'm always next to my acting coach, and and I know nothing. This is only the beginning, but heart filled with gratitude for sure well, congratulations and thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it no you too thanks very much for tuning in to awards chatter we really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on itunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.